there are two ways in which we generally approach the Lord's table. The first I'm going to call the Latin way of looking at it. The Latin way stresses forgiveness, and rightly so. From the 5th century all the way to the Reformation with Luther, that was the understanding. God forgives us. Now your job is to obey and do things right. Problem is, the second part is really hard. And I've talked about that before. But that's the Latin view. God forgives us. And most of the hymns and songs that we sing when we come, when we think about God redeeming us, is he frees us from the judgment of sin. Now, I want to mention two things about this particular point. The first premise I want to take in my sermon, there are three. The first is that the redeeming and atoning work of Jesus Christ meets the demand of God's righteous character. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Is it we have... But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, the Old Testament also testifies of this redemption. Don't, don't separate the two. We would not really understand who Jesus is as the Messiah apart from the terminology we get in the Old Testament. Messiah, forgiveness, sacrifice, you could go through a number of words that we would not know, apart from which the law and the prophets testify. Now here, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now I immediately face, for me, maybe not for you, a dilemma with this statement. This righteousness comes. He's not talking about our righteousness. He's talking about God's righteousness. And the dilemma is this. How can God forgive sins well God can do anything right we often focus on the power of God but the question is how can God forgive sins righteously and still maintain his own righteous character that's the issue a simple illustration might be I might have a class and say it's a let's try to build it up a little bit and if you don't pass this class, you cannot graduate from Bethel University. So the kids take the class. It's a tough test. The highest grade was a D. Half of three-quarters of the class got a D, except for one person. They got an A. And they came and said, Dr. A, we don't understand this. How did, let's give him a name, how did Jimmy get an A on this test? Do you know that he cheated? No, I did not know that. So I called Jimmy up and I say to him, Jimmy, look, I know you cheated. You're a good kid, but let's forget about it. The next time I give a test, what would you do? You would cheat. I have to maintain my own authoritative practice for that to be true. How can God then look at me and all of us who are sinners and forgive us. That's the dilemma. So the second thought that I have here in the meeting the demands is how did God do this? How did God enable us to be forgiven? And what did he do? 
Well, we have here another scriptural text. It's found in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. We find the answer. Look at this text. And are all justified freely by his grace. Now, grace is going to be one, but I'm going to skip it for the moment. Through the redemption. Here's the first word. He redeemed. That came by Christ Jesus. 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. So you have redemption and sacrifice of atonement are the two basic means by which God was able to forgive us. Now, I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit more. He did this, this is the latter part, he did this so to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He's going to prove himself righteous. Let's look at these two words quickly. The word here, redemption. Redemption comes from a word. It's latron. It means simply to uh, cancel, to ransom, to pay, to rescue, to redeem. You see it all over in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew, Christ came not to serve but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You find it in 2 Timothy. You find it in Peter. He did not redeem us with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Christ came to die, to live and to die on the cross and to rise again in order to be able to forgive us of our sins. That is going to be later. You receive this by faith. You got to understand, we are sinners and we will be till the day Christ comes and takes us home. But we stand not because we are members of Gateway Church, not because we affirm to the Christian Missionary Alliance, not because you affirm to the Apostles' Creed, not because you were baptized. You are redeemed simply by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. We will celebrate that in this table. Let me read to you again simply from Colossians. He has rescued us or redeemed us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light in his son in whom we have forgiveness of sin. You are forgiven and this table wants us to think about that. So when I sit there, I think for me the best thing I ever discovered was this table. When I come to church, this is a great time. I had another person who works in the church. We sat down and talked and he says, you know, it is for me too. <laughs> I come and I thank you, Lord. Look at what I am. <laughs> and you chose to forgive me. So there is the Latin view. The second perspective that I have is I'm going to simply call, I couldn't think of a name all week. I tried to think of a term, but that name was simply belonging to. God not only forgave us, but he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, where there is forgiveness, righteousness in Christ alone. I belong to him. You have to grab a hold of that. The reason I hesitate in the table is because I'm always fearful I'm not good enough. 
That's not the point of the table. When you take the bread, Christ went through it for you. He now stands, says Hebrew, as a faithful, merciful, compassionate high priest before God. Some days I, oh, Lord, I really blew it today. <laughs> I know you did, but you still belong to me. So when I come to the table, as Dan Song said about Father going deeper and deeper and deeper, that has been my experience as a minister. Going deeper and deeper in my relationship with Christ. We have not understood how fantastic that is. We have not yet understood. Not only we understand the power of God, but we don't understand that deep love that is in God that reaches out to us in all times. In this life, we have struggles. I mean, families. I have a dear friend, a minister, whose family is going through some tough times right now. My family recently is going through a real tough time. And you reach out and go into God, and God takes hold of you. He puts his arms around you, and he says, I'll take care of it. Our problem is that we think we're smarter than God. But I need you, to God, to do it tomorrow. God says, well, just wait. <laughs> That's the hard part. So the table is going to tell us in a moment why we can go deeper into God, be fulfilled with him. I have had the greatest times of my life as a minister of the years when I spend time alone just talking with God. Whatever comes into my mind. Oh, Lord, I'm struggling. What do you think about this? What do you think? And, you know, it's amazing. I drive away just filled with the fullness of God. So this is regenerate. This is redemption. He has redeemed you. Second Corinthians. He made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Okay. That's the first idea that we have. He ransomed us. The second idea was. God presented him in verse 25 as a sacrifice of atonement. That's a phrase. If you have the old King James, it says he made propitiation. That has now been translated again into sacrifice of atonement. Look at verse 25. Of God presented him. This word presented is most significant. If you read Greek, probably most of you do not. But this word comes from protithemi for all of those who read Greek. It means God appointed him or God assigned him as a sacrifice of atonement. Notice, it really is fuller meaning than that. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through his blood to be received by faith. This is a great word. Sacrifice simply means to stand in the place or to be in the place of another who is under condemnation, death, or need. But in this case, condemnation and death. Somebody's going to take my place. Now, I want you to use your imagination. Whatever I did with my watch, see where I got to go. <laughs> I want you to use your imagination. Think for a moment you are a part of the divine trinity. You are the objective side of the Trinity. The ability of God to show and reveal and to share and to relate himself. He says, look, son, I want you to do something really tough. 
I want you to go down and make payment for all these sinners. It's going to be hard because you're not a sinner, but you're going to have to be one. Now, if you are holy and pure as God is, and you're going to assume darkness when you're all light, whoa, Father, what are you asking of me? I'm going to skip this element, but there are, well, I am. It's a Greek kind of thing, but it's... Sometimes when you talk about faith in Christ or faith of Christ, it means... God's faith on our behalf. So when God goes through, the, when Jesus goes through the process, he's going to have faith in all the deep struggles that he will face. So he brings about and restores for us that avenue of faith with God, as well as forgiveness. But you need to be careful, because when you talk about forgiveness and you talk about being redeemed, this is not Please understand, this is not like a business transaction. Keep this in mind. When God seeks to come to redeem you, he's not making a business transaction between him and God. Nor, as Gregory the Great said back in about the 12th century, no, what it is, he's making a payment to Satan. Satan holds us in his grip, so Jesus is coming to be a sacrifice to make a payment for us. No, he's not. God doesn't know anything to Satan. In fact, he cast him out of heaven. He has no obligation to Satan. So when they make a sacrifice, the sacrifice does make a payment, but it has to fulfill something. Nor, nor is it a sacrifice that has to pay by silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. Jesus, on behalf of God, will maintain that God is righteous. What he has to do for you and me, he has to die and he has to silence the law. Those two things his sacrifice must accomplish to make an atonement for our sins. Why die? For the wages of sin is what? Death. Romans 5, 21. And sin came in the world by one man and through sin came what? Death. The one thing most of us fear is death, and rightly so. It's natural, because we don't know what's on the other side, and we don't know whether it'll hurt. But Jesus will conquer death. There's one place in this whole universe that a human person came, and death had no power over him. He was life. And he rose from the dead, in order that you and I might have free over the power of death. Paul writes about this. Those who all their lives have been held by the fear of death, by that one who holds the power of death, namely the devil, Paul, uh, Epistle to Hebrew states, that you might be set free from the power of death. So he's going to be a sacrifice. Sacrifice also includes the fact that Jesus assumes human nature. I want you to grasp this. The incarnation. We always, we always think of the death of Christ, and rightly so, and the resurrection. Resurrection is a powerful truth. But Jesus assumed human nature. 
yet without sin. He became one with us. Let me reflect just for a moment on this important truth, if I can. Christ identified with us. I wrote the incarnation. That's what it is. The incarnation, God penetrated in Jesus Christ the dark depths of human sin and alienation from God, taking our fallen and distorted humanity on himself in order that to get at the depths and roots of the sin and guilt entrenched within the recesses of our human existence. I think of this every time I come to the table and I take the bread. Jesus, if you understand who he is, God himself, who enters into darkness and becomes one with me and becomes recognized as a sinner in order that he may encounter all the depths of human existence for me. Wow, that staggers my imagination. And I can hear in my own imagination Satan and all of his minions and followers. He's a sinner. Look at him. He's just like the rest of them. Kill him because the wages of sin is death. Kill him. And so they crucify him. All of us together in that world. Yes, if you are the son of God, come down, show yourself. We always want these proofs. <laughs> but the proof is not developing a relationship. So he did this for us. Let me make another remark here. In the incarnation, these are some thoughts that I have. The incarnation of Jesus Christ has embodied the tensions and contradictions in our broken and rebellious human nature in such a way that the atonement brings about a reconciliation in a dynamic form and is worked out within the actual historical relations and structures of our human existence through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. What he did is not some abstraction. My problem is right here, right in this world. And Jesus becomes one with me, shares my thoughts, shares my struggles, and conquers them. If you're going through struggles now, we all do. That's what Satan does. That's his purpose. His purpose is to try, especially for the people of God, to create for them situations that brings doubts about God. But once you decide to go deep with God, deep means deep in relationship. Get to know him. I mean, Jesus and God is so phenomenal, we have ne never will understand the fullness of it, of who he is. Never grasp it all, but we've got enough. We have enough to trust in him. And this past two weeks, for a number of reasons, that was a challenge for me. I had this challenge. God, what will you do? You have promised. If we come and ask, you will do. Here I am, Lord. <laughs> and we need to learn to love not only the power of God, but that mercy, that love, that compassion that embodies him. And so the sacrifice of atonement and the incarnation enables God to do that. One other thought. 
through his earthly life, the incarnation Savior shares all of our experiences, endures our fearful temptations and onslaughts and forces of darkness, yet overcame them in a life of purity and faithfulness. Withstanding the strains of human sin and God's judgment on it, he sanctifies every phrase of human life within the union of his divine and human natures in the oneness of the person of Jesus Christ, our mediator. That's what he did. That's what the table says. When I take that piece of bread, my heart is full because I know, and it's really not the songs I sing, or it is my understanding of what he did for me. Wow. It's not simply God stops and looks at you and says, wait, I got a timetable. I got a real big table here. Let's see what you did this month. Oh, man. And Satan says, yeah, take a look. He can't do anything for you. Yes, he has. You are God's child. As his child, he will not abandon you. Paul says at the end of Romans 8, what shall separate me from the love of God? Shall things past Shall things present? Shall things in the future? We all have scars on our soul, so to speak, from things we wish we had never done. Will that separate you from? Not at all. And it could, nothing in above or below can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And when you take the cup and the bread, that's God saying to you, you are my child. The Latin one says, you're forgiven. This one says, you're mine. What shall take you from them? Jesus said, all those who come to me from the Father, I will receive them, and nothing shall snatch them from my hand. For what Christ has done for us, that's what we will celebrate. Let me hurry. I knew I'd take too long. <laughs> so the first thought that I have is that the redemptive atoning work of Christ meets the demands of God's righteous character. It is God who answered it. It is God who counsels out for us the demands of the law. For he says in Galatians, Paul says, those who die in the cross are under the curse, but he has released us from the curse of the law. You are free in Christ. And that's his point. Now, second thing I would like to bring to you as you have in your little outline, and I'll go through quickly these two, is that the redemption reveals the depth of God's gracious character. And we are justified freely by his grace, says Paul, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as the sacrifice of atonement through his blood. Grace. We need to think a little bit about Grace. I think we need to think about it in two ways. I think this is just me, so you don't have to follow me. But there is a caution, God thinks, about grace. And that is, you need to understand that there is no eternal command on God that he must forgive us. He doesn't have to. As John writes... We did not love God, but he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. He loves us as we are, as the song says. 
And as Dan sang, you know, we have a father. And that's lost some dimension as a metaphor in our time. But it's a father is one who cares, loves, stands for you, is there with you, regardless of what happens. You may have a child in a far country and you love that child. Despite what the child has done. God's the same way. When you think about God, and I think about God, and I meet people, there is no comparison to any other claims of God's equal to his divinity. It just cannot be. What God sacrifices himself for the others? I do not know. It's not Buddha. It's not Islamic God. You name one who himself takes on the burden of you. And not only that, is preparing a remarkable, as uh, Philippians says, there is an inheritance of you which will never fade, de de decay, kept for you in heaven. I do not know what heaven is. It's not, I would suggest to you, like we say, oh boy, I need a rest and I'm going to take a, a week off in Florida. It's not here and all these troubles and life, so I'm going to go to heaven and do something. You're going to be in the place where God dwells, where life is full and everything works perfectly. It'll be marvelous. Now, I'm getting older than most of you, maybe not all of you, but I look forward. I have limitations and pains and things, and I think, well, Lord, it's okay. I'm ready to go. <laughs> I look forward to it. It's the greatest thing that will ever happen. He has planned it. Now, here's where the control and power comes in. And nothing on this earth will stop him. He will come soon and abolish evil and all war and will establish himself as the king and ruler of the world. So grace is there. Grace is simply that act of God motivated by love, mercy, and compassion for someone who does not have it. Life is tough. The evil one makes certainty of that either in my finances or in my sickness or whatever it may be, and you say, oh, Lord. And pain is nothing. Pain is one of his best ammunitions. God, get rid of this. I went to the doctor, and he told me just to take a pill, but it keeps going on. So I cry out to God, and God says, hang in there with me. Trust me. It's hard to trust God when pain is burning in your body. But his, his grace will reach out to you. And finally, you might want to look, take a look. I put it on because I knew I was going to be quick on this. Or Not only does it meet the demands of God's righteous character, and it reveals the depth of God's gracious character in forgiveness. And let me make a, a side point that's up here. Look at that for a moment. Forgiveness in a Christian way is different than when you go to a psychiatrist and you're mad at somebody and you can't get rid of it and you just can't live with it. What normal psychiatric theory says, just put it out and leave it and forget it. 
Okay, it's hard to do, but just forget it. Christian forgiveness is different as exemplified by God's work in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness says, I forgive you, brings to mind an illustration from a famous preacher. I don't know if I've got time to say the illustration. Who says, uh, if I gave his name, you'd all know him. But he wrote in, in uh, Christianity Today a long time ago. He says, I lived on a farm with my mom and dad and my brother. Things happened. I went into ministry. My brother went working. And something happened. And my older brothers forced my family, my mother and father, to sell the farm and took it for himself. Well, this minister friend says, I wrote my brother a letter. And I said to my brother, I want you to know that I'm a Christian now and I forgive you. But I never want to see you again. Christian faith says, I forgive you and I draw them back graciously into the community and fellowship again. That's hard. That's why people have a hard time of giving forgiveness. I have to like you again. It's a process. It just doesn't happen. Boom, then I forgive you. It's a process that you go through. But Christian forgiveness requires that the person in the church who said to me, Pastor Don, I don't know why you ever preached this sermon. It is the most boring sermon I ever heard. Really? Or it could happen when I was teaching. A student may come up, Dr. A, that was what I was usually identified as. I think you're the worst Christian and the worst teacher that Bethel ever had. And I can say as a Christian, well, if God enables me, thank you for letting me know. I'll try and do better. And then I might if I'm wrong. Are you taking a class for me again? <laughs> That's not right. I have to say thank you and sincerely mean you may be too. I have to take a look at myself. What am I doing? That's Christian forgiveness. God didn't look down and say, look, why should I forgive these nasty, dysfunctional, rebellious people? Why should I do this enormous sacrifice for them? Because that's who God is. And finally, it is all done by faith. And I want to thank the people who do all the overhead. They've been so good to me. But you have it on this sheet. I know I won't have time, but just to skip through a couple of these things quickly. Faith. It is through faith in his blood. Couple points. They're there. I'll just mention them. One of them I will spend a little bit of time. But faith, technically, is not a dimension of knowledge. Oh, thank you, guys. I'll just say that. There's a difference between knowing and believing. Quick illustration. <laughs> I can tell you that I know my Greek New Testament is laying on the couch in my living room. I know it. I've got, well, I've I got to put the money value down because I don't have it. I've got $20. I was going to say 100 but I might not meet that. I got $50 if that's where it is. I know it. But if I say to you, I believe that my Greek New Testament is lying on the couch, it's different. Knowing is trying, making some kind of assertive phrase that it is true. Belief is saying, I make a personal commitment that that's where it is. Trust me. So there's a difference there. The second point is important too. I define faith as a reasonable committal 
to the God of Holy Scripture who offers forgiveness and restoration in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Faith is not simply a leap into the darkness. I hope it's true. If we had time, we could struggle with the relationship between faith and reason. They're not so antithetical as you think. Number three is, is the most important one. Faith involves an existential commitment. Now, up a, a reasonable committal, but it's also an existential committal to the object of my belief, namely faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Now, let me explain existential to you. You may already know, but forgive me, I'll go through it again. Existential is you're confronted with a decision that will cause your life to go one way or another. That's what it is. Let me give you a personal illustration <clears throat> of this. In my hometown in Modesto, California, it's known for its farming area, Central Valley of California. A lot of fruits, trees, walnuts, almonds, all this kind of stuff. And we do it by irrigation. In my hometown near us is a bridge. Now, California has gateways, water. We call them canals where the water up in the high Sierras is stopped and comes down dammed, and in about May, they'll release it and the water comes down, and the farmers will know, informed by the ditch tender, when they get water for their crops. We have a bridge there. That bridge is about from here to the back of the auditorium. It's a cement bridge. It's got a pillar in the middle, two sides. The water flows in there in about June when all of us go to the, down to the canal to swim. All the kids did. The water is about here, and the top of the bridge is about here. Myself and my friend George and John were going to see if we could swim under the bridge all the way through. This is summer. We're bored, I guess. I don't know. I don't advise you to do this if you want to try it. But anyway, we did. George was the first. Off he dove in, went down, laid on his back, grabbed the hold of the back, because the water is moving. You're hanging on, lets himself go under a little ways, and pretty soon his hands were gone. He's gone. The water pushes him on. John and I ran quickly to the other side, waited. It seemed like an eternity. We waited. Didn't come. Finally, he came out, like all young people. Oh, it's easy. Don, it's your turn. <laughs> and I said, isn't one a day enough? We, maybe we can do it tomorrow. No, no, you have to do it today. So I said, well, tell me what it's like. I want to acquire some knowledge. Knowledge is when you first start, you're scared as can be, and you don't think you have enough water, so you try to come up, and you'll bang on that cement bridge. <laughs> as you go along, it'll get darker and darker. Then it'll get lighter and lighter, and out you come. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, let's suppose I bring all of you or some of you to my home in California. I say, I've got a wonderful experience for you. I want you to swim under our little Lincoln Bridge. And don't worry, I went to Harvard and to Yale and studied going under bridge. I have a PhD in swimming underneath bridge. I know it all. It wasn't until the day I got down, started under, I knew precisely what he meant by being frightened. You don't know whether you're going this way or that way or straight. Just go with the current. I hit my head several times on the bottom of that bridge. It did get light, and out we came. Faith requires, this is existential, the possibility of not succeeding 
and you take the risk. I put my trust and faith in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And I will study and give rationales for it and why it's that way. Faith requires an existential commitment. That means let go and trust in Christ. How many times have you met a person who's become a new believer? And wow, I never knew this kind of freedom. <laughs> I mean, they're exalted. Joy, exuberant comes forth. And then they start to learn about Christ. And then the other, the fourth one is, faith is a way of standing before the God in the righteousness of Christ. This is what the, the table says. You belong to me. But I'm not very good, Lord. This week I got so mad at somebody somewhere <laughs> getting a hamburger. They didn't bring it in time or whatever. So I don't think you will like me much. God says, that's not the point. My son went through agony, slaughtering, beating with a whip that tore his back open, carried his cross for a ways, nailed him on the cross. One of the worst types of persecution you can give to someone. He didn't do it for nothing just because you happened to do something that wasn't quite. Now, that's not to say, don't worry about what you do. You need to keep close records with God. But you're still his child. And so this is what I said. And there's a difference here. I'll give you, just closing. Faith for me originally was quantitative. And then I've changed it. Quantitative is like you've got a cup. You fill it up. How much have you got in? We often say, how much faith do I have? <laughs> That's not what the Bible means. It's qualitative. It is a relationship. It is an experience with God. So that somebody comes to me or to Pastor Paul and has a deep struggle, we have gone through those and we know what God is like. Not because we are special. We've gone through it with God and God has proved himself per perfect and faithful. So when we come to the table, it is my understanding when I take the bread, it's not just a ritual, though in some sense it is too. But we take that bread with great gratitude with the understanding, oh Lord, I'll leave this church today with such great joy for what God through Christ has done for me. And that's what we'll do. Let's prepare as pastor comes to receive the Lord's table. Amen. Isn't that a great teaching on the Lord's table? you got a, an outline you can go back and listen to. The teaching on the podcast, there's so much there. And uh, we so appreciate Dr. Alexander and uh, his ministry in the Word today. I'm going to ask the stewards if they'll come forward wow. today. A few instructions as we just build on the message that Dr. Alexander has shared with us. You can re just remain standing there, all right? And uh, um, here at Gateway Church, you don't have to be a member to participate in communion. We ask that uh, you would spend that time giving thanks to the Lord 
that his grace is so amazing that all of our sins as a Christian, past, present, and future are forgiven. Amen? And that we belong to him and that his, his love is, is amazing. And let's rejoice in that today. And so you are encouraged to participate. Obviously, we do want you to, to pray and make things right in your heart as it re- relates to sin. And take that bread and take that cup and let's receive that together. So we're going to pass out the bread first, which is symbolic of our Lord's body, that he came in the great incarnation, as we heard about. And uh, then we'll, we'll partake together. We'll receive together. Amen. Amen.